and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. Now, I say another edition of uh, the podcast, um, but not really. <laughs> Today, it's, it's very different. Usually, we record the podcast in a, uh, in a radio studio today, in a television studio, because this is a very special occasion. Today, we have as our guest, Dr. Sebastian Mafoud, who is the reason why, why the podcast even began. And uh, he's the director of WCAT Radio, which uh, carries all of our podcast, all of our these podcasts as well as so many others. So, uh, Dr. Mafood, it is our very great pleasure to have you here today. Thank you, Ray. Um, so, this is St. Paul's Letters to America, and it is the program in which we ask a simple question: What if St. Paul were alive today? What if he were here in America, or at least was alive? And could see what was going on in America, and uh, you know felt compelled based on what he was seeing in our country to write us a letter. What would he tell us? Well, we know the answer to that. Not that we think we know. We know the answer to that. And the reason why we know the answer to that is because he wrote the truth. The letters that he wrote to the Galatians, the Colossians, and so many others expressed the truth, and the truth does not change. Now, today, a lot of people, you may not actually you know, believe this, but a lot of people don't even believe in the truth anymore. They don't even believe there is such a thing called the truth, or that you can identify the truth. But it is there, just this, I mean, for the simple reason that there is a God, and the truth is, um, the truth is an awareness of Him, His creation, His, His purpose, His individual plans for each one of us, um, so there is a truth. Uh, the only question is whether we can see it, whether we can understand it. So how do we know? Well, we ask questions, and that's what we do in this podcast. We ask questions, and they're usually, well, always, in the context uh, of a letter from St. Paul, um, as is going to be the case today. But before we do that, um, I want to um, introduce Dr. Merfoud again, because not only is he the director of WCIT Radio, but he's got another, uh, he's got something else that keeps him a little busy, and it's the reason why he's here today. So perhaps you could tell us. You are the director for the Institute for Theological Encounter with Science and Technology. So ITEST is an institute that was founded in 1968 by uh, Father Robert Brungs, who's a Jesuit father, who um, was an incredible uh, source, an incredible inspiration uh, for. Um, our understanding of a complementarity uh, between faith and science, at least in the St. Uh, Louis region, for over 40 years. And um, he died in 2006, and the organization continued under the leadership of Dr. Thomas Sheehan, who served as director until 2021. And then he stepped down, and uh, I think I was just the last man on the ship. You were the last person. You're the, the, the likely candidate. You're the only available kind of person. Uh, I'd say uh, it was one of those instances where you're in a room and people are saying, uh, "Who could be the new director?" And then somebody points to uh, yeah, that guy over there. In the <laughs> he just stepped out. Let's elect him, <laughs> and when he comes back, we'll we'll surprise him with the announcement. So that's it. So you've been the director now for uh, for about a year and a half. Okay. So um, and before that, I was on the board for maybe 12 years. I joined the board in 2006, so um, however long that is, that's 16 years now that I've been involved uh, with the Institute for Theological Encounter with Science and Technology. So the objective of the Institute is to, uh, is to what, to, to explore, to stress, to um, spread the word about the fact that there is this complementarity between science, technology, and what, what I've called the truth. Uh, you know, there is a complementarity with, with the divine plan, the divine order. Absolutely. So um, we're losing a lot of uh, Catholics. We're losing a lot of Christians um, uh, to agnosticism and to atheism because they believe science has all the answers. Um, and that science, what, is opposed and that it's to faith. Yeah, that it's diametrically opposed to faith because if you can demonstrate something through science, then... Um, uh, you don't need to. You don't need God to explain it. You can say, "Oh, well, this happens uh, scientifically because of evolution," mm -hmm. or "This happens uh, because of um, uh, how DNA works." And uh, they say, "Well, if if it's possible for us to explain it in natural terms, 
Why do we need to resort to the supernatural, for which there's no empirical evidence? Right. And so uh, we, uh, they call themselves, um, or we would uh, understand them as material reductivist, uh, people sure. who uh, reduce everything to the material reality. What, to I can, what I can see, what I can touch. And if I can't see it and I can't touch it, it's not real. Then it doesn't exist. That's yeah. right. So, you know, you, you could be wondering, well, would St. Paul have anything to say about this? Um, would he have anything to say that would be relevant to this? Well, as a matter of fact, um, he wrote that ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Um, yes, there is a divine order. It's plainly apparent if you're at least open to it and you can see that there is so much more, that, there, that there's got to be something behind, you know, uh, just, you know, what has come to be. How has this all come to be? But anyways, so St. Paul believed that. St. Paul believed that from the world that, that was just in front of us, you could perceive a divine order to things. And so that's obviously the question that uh, everybody that's involved in the Institute explores. So how many people are involved in the Institute? How, you know, how do you, you know, how do you spread the word? Or how do you explore these questions? Well, we have several hundred members um, who are uh, in the Institute for Theological Counter. I'll just call it ITEST to save the... Uh, I got that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have about 300 members. Um, we have about 1,700 people on our mailing list. We have some uh, meaningful partnerships. We have 30 bishops in our membership. Uh, we have a lot of priests. Um, and we're connected with other organizations like the Magis Institute, you know, Father Robert Spitzer. Mm -hmm. or, oh, okay, um, sure. So, I mean, and he's come and he's done webinars for us. You know, he, uh, he put together a presentation several years ago uh, that, uh, that we continue to make available. Um, Stephen Barr's uh, Society of Catholic Scientists has mm -hmm. been very helpful to us. Um, and uh, uh, in addition to um, uh, the, uh, the partnerships we have with other organizations, I'm constantly looking for more people involved in the faith and science conversation uh, to help uh, spread that uh, message of complementarity between the worlds of faith and the worlds of science. Um, St. Augustine is purported to have once said, that the book of nature and the book of scripture are written by the same author. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, you get that from Genesis even, you know, at the very beginning of Genesis, we've got God creating everything in an order, you know, and um, we are part of that order. We're part of the natural world, uh, and we're part of God's creation in his image and likeness. So uh, understanding that uh, is, uh, is something that, um, uh, that people of faith have understood for thousands of years. You know, just that alone, uh, that uh, the natural world is, um, has a creator. It didn't create itself. And we can participate in that creation, um, in that act of creation, uh, in, in the life of our creator, uh, simply by cooperating with grace, you know, which God freely provides. Um, many people like to walk around with... Uh, with umbrellas, because the ocean of grace and mercy is dumping, is, is pouring on their heads constantly. But they got to be me, you know. So they they hide. Yeah. Um, so um, so the faith science con uh, conversation, the complementarity between faith and science, is an important uh, an important uh, thing to express, an important uh, uh, understanding uh, to share with others. And that's what ITES does in terms of sharing its message and extending its message to the world. We do it through our bulletins, to our membership. We do it through webinars. We try to find interesting people who can have this conversation, who have organizations uh, through which we can extend our message. And we have them come on, come on our show. So perhaps yeah. now's a good time to ask this. Sure. But if somebody wanted to watch any of these webinars, how do they do that? Uh, if you go to our website at faithscience.org, all of faith science, faith, not faith science, and, not faith and just faith, just faithscience.org. We kept it simple. Simple is good. Yeah. Uh, so faithscience.org, uh, we have all of the webinars there, and in every uh, time we do one, we do it through Zoom. We record it. We post it on WCAT TV, another one of our partners. Um, 
and uh, then we share it uh, with, through our network. We share it with all of our bishops, with all of our uh, priests, and uh, with all of the people in the organizations um, uh, from which uh, our speakers come. Now, do the people that participate in these webinars, are they all uh, religious or some of them scientists or what's the makeup? Do they come from different, you know, fields? They do come from different fields. So um, uh, when Father Brungs began an annual conference, and this is what we base the webinars on, he used to have people come from different uh, perspectives within a particular tradition, a particular faith tradition or a particular science tradition. And he would ask them to share their views with one another, and then an audience that had gathered would be able to ask them questions. And so that's how we started the webinars. Uh, we, had, um, we would have people come uh, who would express uh, their understanding of how science or a scientific process works, physics, you know, some of the hard sciences, um, chemistry, biology. And we would have somebody else say, okay, well, what about these things? And uh, it would likely be a theologian uh, who would uh, enter into that conversation. And uh, at a certain point in the conversation, uh, they uh, are expressing the complementarity of faith and science. And that's... At some point, at certain points in the conversation, things converge? Uh, things converge pretty much at most points in the conversation. Really? It's the recognition that they're converging, which is what happens at specific points in the conversation. They say, oh, wait a second, this, uh, what you're explaining as a scientific process is not at all at odds with the faith. It, in fact, helps demonstrate that the faith is coherent <laughs> and cohesive. So are there some eureka moments? I mean, are there, are there people, for example, who might be participating in this that kind of get maybe surprised by the fact that these things sort of coalesce? And that's when you see the questions pop up in the chat room. Uh -huh. And uh, during the Q&A, the presenters will go through and they'll address those uh, questions. Mm -hmm. And it's in that engagement with an audience, with uh, people who are saying, well, wait a second, let me put you on the spot for a moment about this or that, uh, where uh, the insights um, are evident, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of how the audience is uh, able to uh, find within this encounter uh, between faith and science uh, room for growth. All of a sudden, you can just see, or maybe even in the text message or the chat room comments, just sort of like see the wheels turning. Or sometimes you see it turning in the, uh, the, participants, the participants themselves. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> well, that's an interesting thought. Let, let, let's see, let's explore this a bit. Yeah, so. Um, so I take it you've seen a number of these. Are there any that, you know, seem to be memorable or any of these that... You know, come to mind. I'm putting you a little bit on the on the spot here. Oh, I don't mind being put on the spot. Okay. Um, we've done. Um, we started doing the webinars uh, as, as a regular occurrence uh, after COVID hit. Um, in 2000, uh, suddenly the world found itself on Zoom, and the world learned how to use video conferencing software. Prior to 2000, uh, you would send a WebEx or you would send some kind of uh, invitation to somebody to join a show. And you really need a lot of technical support to get people into the mindset of, okay, I'm going to join a show in this way. That was the first thing. Mm -hmm. And these are the technical things I need to do to get on the show. Mm -hmm. Zoom made it easy. Zoom was a link. You tapped a button. You were there. Right. Um, and um, Zoom, from a uh, presenter point of view, um, not that I'm doing a commercial for Zoom, by the way, but you know, just the software itself is what enabled this to happen. Um, allowed us to invite people into a show, uh, to mute their microphones so we didn't have the distraction coming from, um, uh, you know, any ambient noise right. that might be in their environment. Right. Um, it uh, gave us the opportunity to record and even the opportunity to throw people into break rooms if we wanted to do um, breakout sessions. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of useful uh, aspects to this technology. Uh, but the most important thing was it was simple. So in 2000, I did a show, and I invited a couple of speakers uh, to come and talk, and um, we gathered an audience, uh, and I, I thought, wow, that went over really well. You know, we had about 40, 50 people show up. Let's do it again. So within another month, I had, um, I had uh, another show put together. Um, so memorable ones, uh, we did, um, we did uh, a show on... Um, uh, the um, in vitro fertilization just recently, 
-hmm. in what it means, you know, uh, for people to engage in that kind of activity, whether there are moral implications, or moral is there a moral dimension to it? What does our faith say about it? Uh, Dr. Marian Erlakis uh, was uh, one of the presenters on that show. We did one um, with Dr. Elizabeth Rex, uh, where she came and she talked about um, uh, uh, frozen embryos and embryonic transfer and whether or not it was licit. Uh, in America, we've got uh, millions of frozen embryos because of the in vitro fertilization. Mm -hmm. uh, what you do is you fertilize a lot of eggs and um, uh, you implant a few. And then those that you implant, you select which ones you want to keep based on their positioning. And those that you don't want to keep uh, are aborted. So if, if every uh, person, if Dr. Seuss is right, in Horton Here's a Who, <laughs> that a person's a person no matter oh, how gosh. small, if every human person um, who uh, is alive uh, has... Um, uh, what would be considered by the scientists to perform IVF, a fungible identity. That is, there are six uh, embryos implanted. We don't like three of them, or four of them, or five of them. And so it doesn't matter which one we, it's, it's all a matter of luck as to which one implanted best. Uh, then uh, what, does, what does human life mean? What does it mean for us to be sitting here today um, when uh, we could have been uh, uh, otherwise a victim? You're fungible. Of this fungible identity, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, so shows like that, shows that talk about life and talk about uh, our human experience are those that are most memorable to me. We have lots of shows that talk about physics. And uh, uh, we have um, uh, speakers like Dr. Tom Sheehan who are very articulate in these, um, in these programs. Uh, but the ones that, uh, that talk about life have, have the most meaning to me uh, simply because of my... Uh, um, I have a, I'm part of a pro-life ministry uh, called Life Runners, um, which is uh, run by a man named Pat Castle, who is on the board of iTest. I'm, I was able to recruit him, um, who uh, was instrumental in uh, helping um, our society uh, understand that uh, decisions like Dobbs versus Jackson are the right decisions. Uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade. We've been working on that one for decades. Well, now you're talking my language. That's, well, you know, from a, a legal question. Yeah. Um, you know, that one is because the, the thing about that decision that actually, I mean, it gets a lot of people animated. It, it's, a, it's a scientific issue. Well, it deals with a scientific issue. It gets a lot of people animated. But really, what it's about is human freedom. Right. Um, when you talk about, you know, a, a life in the womb, it's about human freedom. You know, the. The fact that, that that unborn child has a right to freedom, has a, has a right to live. Um, the Dobbs decision recognized freedom. It simply took the decision on this very controversial, from a, from a societal point of view, controversial or hotly debated issue, and put it in the hands of the people instead right. of nine guys in Washington, D.C., who nobody elected to their office. Mm -hmm. you know, and so, you know, that's it. You know, it's one of the things that we, we talk about on the, on the podcast often enough, which is simply this, this idea that, you know, humans have this dignity. Humans have a freedom. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny that um, that should cause so much consternation in people, like when you recognize freedom. Uh, it's in our, it's in our uh, Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. uh, all men have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, liberty is freedom, but before liberty, you need life. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been we've been uh, talking about that for two hundred uh, over two hundred years, two hundred and fifty close to. So, uh, why it should be a surprise to anyone that that should be a central tenet of our uh, existence as an American people? But even in this, it seems like there's. I mean, we're just you know at, at random, sort of touching on a certain issue and. Even in this, you can see the complementarity, yeah. because you know is is the desire for freedom, is the satisfaction that we get from being free, is the you know the angst or the disturbance that we feel when we're not free, yeah. is that part of our created human nature? Is that part of the order of things? Um, I mean, that's 
because this desire for freedom, that's not something you can, you can touch or you can see, but it is real, is it not? It's a, an effective argument against material reductivism. There you go. Against uh, scientism. There you go. Uh, which would reduce everything to the material world. You use big multisyllabic words for me, so I don't know. That's, that might, that's a little disconcerting. I, I get most of my multisyllabic words from my good friend, Dr. Gerard Verschuren. That's a good name for him to have, Dr. It, Gerard. It is. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gerard Verschuren uh, is one of my authors. Um, so in addition to uh, my being the director of iTest, um, I also own a publishing house. And uh, we, I published almost 300 books. It's 294. I'm going to hit 300 this month. This month? This month. Oh, very good. And I'm going to have my King Leonidas party. <laughs> 300. We are Sparta. Um, so uh, Gerard Vachuren is responsible for, I don't know, maybe a dozen of those books. Is he really? And he's about to do a webinar this month mm -hmm. um, called Faith That Makes You Think. Okay. And uh, it'll be a broadcast on, uh, on WCAT radio and WCATV. Mm -hmm. um, but you, uh, if, if anybody would like to come to that webinar, I know I'm dating the show at this point, um, please go to faithscience.org and just register. And it's, uh, it, it's a, in, going to be an incredibly um, enjoyable experience uh, to hear him talk about uh, faith and science. He's a uh, geneticist, uh, is his background. Um, but he says, look, everything we know about science teaches us there's God. Well, it's funny because uh, Dawkins is a geneticist as well. Uh, he considers himself to be an evolutionary biologist. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, at a certain point in whatever agenda you've got, whatever uh, uh, ideology you're, you're pushing, there's an agenda behind it. And so uh, whenever somebody talks about something that is just, you know, oh, well, we can, we can demonstrate that there is no God because uh, evolutionary processes take a long time and we've got enough time to be able to demonstrate this. And if, uh, if, we, get, if we get into wiggle room, we can always say, well, maybe there's multiple dimensions. <laughs> At which point we you're just, like... <laughs> we just make up, the, we just, just make up the, the philosophical, like an alternate order, an alternative reality, just to, to make up for the gaps that we have in our explanation for things. And uh, given that there's no empirical evidence for things like multiple dimensions, uh, or for any uh, made-up philosophy... The people who stress the empirical... Are uh, incoherent. Well, all of a sudden use the, <laughs> use the non-empirical when it suits them. Right. So, uh, so that's the, what makes our faith very coherent. I mean, I, I, we can demonstrate uh, that uh, there is a creator. If there's certain things we don't know scientifically, we're not uh, going to uh, throw ourselves back on scientific eschatology, which is, oh, eventually man will figure these things out. Yes. We can simply say, you know, God created the world for us to explore and understand. By uh, discovering the world, we can encounter God uh, because uh, uh, this is a place... Um, that he's given us in our, uh, in our flesh and our bones uh, to explore and understand. Um, in fact, uh, Stanley Yockey, an incredible theologian, a uh, Jesuit father, and an incredible scientist, uh, once said that um, Christianity is what made modern science possible. And the reason is um, Christianity taught us that there was an order to all things. And therefore, it, it gave us permission to explore that order. And once we started exploring that order, science followed. Yeah. Uh, everything we do empirically is a discovery of the incredible and wondrous creation of God. The capacity to reason and explore these things and discover these, these laws of physics and so forth, I mean, that's all because of the intellectual capacity that came from where? I mean, just, it just came from out of nowhere. Um, I had... Um, I had a discussion with somebody one time, and they fell back on that, that defense that you were talking about. Well, science will discover the answer. We don't know the answer yet, but that's only because we haven't had enough time. Eventually, science will come up with the answer. And the question was, um, okay, but what happened before the Big Bang? Um, and the Big Bang, you know, um, of course, was, again, you talk about the complementarity between, you know, faith and science. I mean, um, my understanding is that the Big Bang Theory was, I mean, owed its origin to a Catholic priest. Father George Lemaitre. And, uh, and he was not put off by such theories, or that I'm sure didn't, you know, uh, disturb his faith. Mm -hmm. But uh, this one gentleman uh, that I was having this debate with one time, 
Uh, so but we don't know the answer to that yet. We don't know what happened before the Big Bang, but science hasn't discovered it yet. And I said, well, the question is really, I, I don't know if this was from Aquinas, where I was, I was borrowing this, this, this rationale from, but I was like, well, how do you get something out of nothing? Because if you didn't have matter, you didn't have the universe, you didn't have the material universe before the Big Bang, and all of a sudden you did. So before the Big Bang, you had nothing. Mm-hmm. Because if there, is, if there was something before the Big Bang, then, well, well you know, where did that come from? Um, but if there was nothing before the Big Bang, that means that the Big, Grand, Big Bang created something out of nothing. So how does that happen? And he just fell back on this, this defense that you mentioned. I said, well, no, it's not a scientific question. It's a philosophical question. Right. These are ideas. Nothing, something. How do you, you know, can you have, you know, have one come from the other? And he didn't really want to engage in that discussion because I think people are so now like conditioned to think, well, science will explain everything. I can stop thinking. Yeah. Um, Proponents um, of uh, scientism um, are like proponents of any ideology. They uh, they don't need to know the answer uh, because uh, exploration of that ideology may expose its flaws. So uh, they're perfectly fine to shrug their shoulders and say, Mm -hmm. well, uh, the scientist will figure it out. I don't have to worry about it. it. At which point you say, well, wait a second, but are you comfortable landing there? Mm-hmm. Are you comfortable not wanting to move further? And uh, you find a lot of people are like characters in uh, Plato's dialogues. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when Socrates would ask them a question, well, where does virtue come from? What is a virtue? Mm-hmm. They're comfortable falling back on bromides and platitudes because the moment that they start thinking about uh, what might be a real response, uh, what might be uh, at least something that would be adequate enough to uh, uh, to put Socrates at bay. Um, they have to uncover a truth about themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's a blow to their pride. Yeah, it's, uh, or it's just maybe, some, maybe part of the explanation is they're a little afraid of it because now you have to take some responsibility for your own life. If you have to think, what is the purpose of my life? Whereas if you just fall back on science and, you know, well, I don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to answer that question. What's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? These are philosophical questions. And if you think everything is explicable by science, why well, don't I have to answer that question? I don't have to worry about that. And as you say, but are you comfortable with that? Because, okay, what's the meaning of your life? Don't you want to know? That's a, that's a key point. What's the meaning of our lives? If uh, our lives actually have a purpose, then we're responsible for, for living that purpose. Mm. Uh, but that gets, uh, that gets in the way of our hedonism. That comes with consequences. Yes. Exactly right. Yeah. We want freedom without responsibility. Right. Um, and uh, to accept freedom uh, in the sense that even you're talking about, you know, in terms of the human person is, uh, uh, is um, that we have a fundamental right for freedom. Mm-hmm. To accept for that fundamental right, to accept freedom and to own it, we have to be responsible. We have to be responsible, and the, there's a consequence to that as well. Because mm-hmm. then if, if you want that freedom for yourself, you have to be willing to acknowledge it uh, you know, for other people as well. And if other people do things or say things you're not really in favor of, well, maybe you don't want to allow them so much freedom that you want to have yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a nasty thing when you demand that things have to be consistent. There's also a fear of um, of uh, this new uh, phenomenon in our society, cancel culture. Mm. Uh, people uh, may be afraid of uh, pointing out, you know, I really don't want to use gender pronouns, for instance, uh, because they're afraid they'll be canceled. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're afraid that um, uh, they will uh, awake a, um, a, a woke community as it were, to, uh, to scrub them out. And, um, you know, we've seen this in uh, some instances. The one that most uh, clearly comes to mind is the, um, uh, that high school student who was at a pro-life march in uh, Washington um, and uh, an Indian, uh, somebody you're representing... Talking, talking about the Covington High School that's it, student. That's it. Representing a, a Native American came up and uh, harassed him. And he simply stood. He didn't mm-hmm. do anything. 
-hmm. Now, a million people show up to Washington, D.C. every year, mm -hmm. and uh, there's no real news coverage. You know, the, the media is not focusing on, oh, look at this outpour of support for uh, the pro-life movement. But they zeroed in on one isolated event, and that became right. the pro-life march, at least as far as the media was concerned. Right. So, and, and this, this cancer culture that goes on, um, it brings up that, that question again of, of freedom. This is intellectual freedom, the, the ability to, you know, uh, think for yourself. No, you have to say certain things. You have to conform to a certain way of thinking. Um, and if you don't, then you get canceled. And so the issue again there is human freedom, human dignity. What is the value? What's the meaning of a human life? What's the value of a human life? Another philosophical question. And those philosophical questions, they have to be able to, co uh, to correlate to scientific discoveries. If it's all part of, you know, a, a coherent whole. And if, and if all of this world and, and all our lives in this world are not part of a coherent, coherent whole, well, that's a, that's a pretty depressing thought. Well, it's uh, those of us who are in both the faith and science conversation are seeking that coherent whole. Um, we could, like the, uh, the scientific ideologues or the, those proponents of scientism, I don't want to uh, uh, demonize anybody. I, mean, I believe everybody is a work in progress. You know, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm a work in progress. We're all on a journey of faith. We're all on all Absolutely. kinds of journeys. Yes. So um, uh, uh, if, um, if we look at something, uh, those of us who are part of this broader conversation that tries to understand our faith, as complementary to our science, and our science is complementary with our faith, um, we are going to ask those harder questions. We are going to explore those areas uh, where, you know, it might be we don't know the answer. And um, we, are going to, we are going to at least acknowledge uh, that we don't know the answer in our faith, that, okay, there are some things that God has done that are a mystery. Take, for instance, the Eucharist. You know, uh, is God present? Is there a real presence in a consecrated host? Mm -hmm. We believe there is, but we also believe that there's a mystery behind it, uh, as in all mysteries, that we will never fully understand. You know, um, St. Damien in Dante's Paradiso meets him in the seventh sphere of heaven and says, the beauty of our faith is that we get to grow eternally eternal spiritual growth in the mind of God. But no matter how big we get, we'll never plumb the mind of God. Mm. Uh, we always, always more to, always more to understand, always more to explore, yeah. God's deep. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, so uh, we, will, um, we will be able to explore our faith in everything in it. And that includes uh, this understanding that the supernatural uh, has formed for us a natural world in which to reside, in which to inhabit. So in this discussion of the supernatural and the natural, what's the response like with um, people in the strictly scientific community? Have there been occasions where you've tried to invite people to participate in a webinar or somehow engage in the discussion that maybe are reluctant? Is this... The people that you run into, the people that you you know come into contact with, are they are they open to this? I suppose there's no one there's no one general reaction or one general uh, description that you can apply. But you know, oh, we've been really good about getting um, uh, people to respond positively uh, to uh, participate in our events. You know, even when um, they can't make a certain date, you know, we're trying to put together a webinar for a particular date. We do them on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Central. And some people are traveling, some people have whatever, and they say, you know, I can't do the date. And I say, well, would you uh, pre-record something that I can post as a way to invite people, you know, who want to watch the pre-recording into actually participating in the webinar? And um, I've had a great deal of success. It's, uh, nobody says, um, uh, no, I won't do it. Uh, I had one person um, who had a distaste for the activity itself. Mm. Uh, you know, the engagement, and um, it was because we were Catholic, uh, and because um, uh, she was a f concerned that uh, sh she would be used, I guess, as a, um, as a, a poster child uh, for something. It was, um, 
um, Norma, um, uh, uh, Jane Rose daughter. Oh, who lives in Texas. Okay. And uh, she said, you know, I'm, I, I don't feel comfortable doing this show. Uh, you know, but, uh, she was, I was inviting her to participate in a show, uh, where we were going to be talking about abortion and about, uh, the Dobbs decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and about the impact of that uh, on the overturning so um, of, um, of Roe v. Wade and what Roe v. Wade meant for 50 years. I mean, uh, these, uh, these children of, uh, of Jane uh, Roe, Norma McCorby, um, did not share uh, the same philosophy. In, some, in fact, um, when I was reading about this one, she didn't even know her mother was involved in the case until she was a teenager. Mm. Um, so uh, that's that's the one instance I can recall where I reached out to somebody and I did not get a good response. But um, you know how that must have been like for somebody. I mean, you're a child of you know the woman who was uh, you know really the catalyst for 50 years of, yeah. of abortion. Would that be you know a little I don't know disturbing to your inner peace? I mean. Well, her mother uh, repented. Her mother. Uh, well, her mother did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know that is that is right there itself an opportunity for conversation. You know, uh, you suddenly see uh, the consequences of a, a decision like this, and sixty million uh, babies dead in this country. Um, it's over uh, half a billion worldwide. You know, with the way that we export um, uh, the pro-abortion activities, the pro-choice activities, mm-hmm. uh, in education programs that come with uh, Planned Parenthood uh, uh, solutions. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the final solution. <laughs> you know, uh, oh wow, if this is going to be inconvenient for us, let's just kill it. You know, and um, right. and it's not just with uh, a matter of inconvenience. It used to be, um, what is it? Uh, it should be safe, rare, and legal. And now it's uh, it's more you know this is our right and we should be able to do it whenever. Whenever. And uh, I don't even think it needs to be safe anymore because you can have doctors who are not doctors performing these uh, procedures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, where's the medical review? I mean, you point this out to a um, a pro-choice person, they've got uh, they've got responses already ready mm-hmm. for all of these uh, considerations. Where we say, well, wouldn't that get in the way of? And they go, no. <laughs> Isn't that incoherent with? And they go, no. Um, so uh, it, it, I just admire Pat Castle in the work that he's done for helping clarify how a pro-life position is much more coherent in mm-hmm. terms of oh, sure. life, liberty, and happiness. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of times a rational discussion is not quite so welcome because there are a lot of inconsistencies that you can point out in the pro-choice, pro-choice position. Um, you know, and so that's why I was wondering, like, when you, you know, when you try to get people to get, uh, to be engaged in the in the discussion, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure that there, you know, it's be some people that wouldn't be quite so open to that. Um, but people that are, you know, intellectually honest, yeah, I'm sure they would have no problem. Yeah, let's explore this. Let's discuss this. And of course, that's really only on the way anybody ever really like grows, or you know, through exploration of of, of uh, topics that may be uncomfortable, um, particularly when they affect uh, who we perceive ourselves and our identity. You know, in a in a world of identity politics, you know, there's lots of ways to hang your a hat, as it were, metaphorically, um, on a particular identity, mm-hmm. and die on that hill. To just mix some metaphors. Um, right. But uh, if we can uh, truly see ourselves as who we are, we're not, our identity is not based on a particular ideology. It's not based on a particular ism. It's based as uh, children of God. That's our identity. So what we do with that identity in terms of exploring those areas of our lives, those areas of our thought uh, that are at variance with our identity, our true identity as children of God, creating the image and likeness of God. Um, that's what will help us grow spiritually and personally. Well, and on that, I mean, um, when you think about it, if, I mean, the Catholic, the Catholic theology, Catholic philosophy, way of looking at life, you talk about the Eucharist, um, all of it uh, relates to, the, all of it involves to some degree this idea that we're all part of one 
large group. We're all part of uh, this, this human family of Christ. We're all connected. We're all united. Whereas if you look at things from a purely biological point of view, and we've got no existence other than just what happens by happenstance, we're just a bunch of molecules and physical elements and so on and so forth, then we've got no responsibility to anybody. We really don't. We're not part of a large human family. Some people can be more important than other people. Is that, is that really true? Is there a truth in that, that we're totally disunited? Or is it, does it feel more right to think that, no, we are all connected? Mm -hmm. And if that feels more right, well, then why? Why are we all connected? Um, to, so those, to, yeah, go ahead. Oh, to agree to that, you'd have to agree that uh, mankind has a common nature. Mm -hmm. And the moment you agree that mankind has a common nature, you suddenly say, wait a second, would there be a law, a natural law, <laughs> that would oversee that? Uh, something uh, with which we, who have a common nature, can participate. And then you're suddenly held accountable. Well, you know, from the famous stories I like, I like to tell, uh, it's a Eucharistic miracle story. It's about sure. um, a gentleman named uh, Andre Fassard, and uh, he described himself as a perfect atheist, uh, which meant that he didn't bother wasting his time talking about whether or not there was a God because the answer is so clear it's not worth wasting your time to sure. even discuss it. And uh, he had a friend of his who went into uh, a Catholic church one time, and he said it was going to be a few minutes. Well, his friend took too long, so he followed him into this church in Paris, 1935, at 510 in, uh, on a certain afternoon. And he came out of that church at 515 uh, saying that he was Roman Catholic and that he had always been Roman Catholic. Because everybody is Roman Catholic. Why? Because, because there is one Christ. Because all of humanity are the children of Christ, that there is a God, and, and we're all, you know, the sons and daughters of this one God. Um, it was an, it's an approved Eucharistic miracle. I mean, that just doesn't just happen. How did that happen? Well, he walked in. The church that he happened to walk into was a church where they practiced uh, perpetual adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. And he had just this amazing mystical experience that he describes in a book which is not that easy to, to find these days. It's out of print and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's one of these stories that is just so amazing. And, you know, again, that speaks to the, the fact that we are all united. Yeah. And, yeah, that's a wonderful question to explore with somebody who would believe solely in a scientific, empirical view of things that, that believes, well, that, no, there's nothing, nothing other than what we can, what we can see. Right. Uh, you know, so, but anyways, but that's, that's again, where the, the, the philosophical has to meet the scientific, and that's, and that's what you're all about. Well, that's grace. Uh, if, um, if Andre Froussard uh, looked in the direction of the Eucharist mm -hmm. and was a, so profoundly impacted by his experience, that mystical experience uh, with, uh, uh, with the divine, uh, which is what a mystical experience is. Um, if he looked in the direction and suddenly he was prompted to cooperate with the grace of God. Oh, he saw it. It was, a, it was an absolute gift from heaven because he, yeah. he saw what he describes. It's a, it's a beautiful description, and he says, you know, words can't describe it. But even the words that he uses to try to describe it, they're just beautiful. <laughs> they're just beautiful. But it was an absolute mystical experience um, where he saw what person standing next to him would not would not have seen sure. you know perhaps because he was given this particular grace he was given this particular blessing so but anyways so what um now that you've been the director now for a couple of years um what would you say if i was actually like like, like what, what what feels most rewarding or what what feels rewarding to you about this particular role what do you think you know that the place of the institute is what, what does it contribute you know how, how do you personally, I guess, sort of, you know, feel about the job of the Institute? Um, I can see uh, myself uh, being director a very long time. You know, when I first accepted the responsibility, it was a responsibility. I was like, well, seriously, there's 12 of us on the board here and nobody else wants it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, as I've grown into it, I've started mapping a lot of my other activities around it. 
So I, I own a publishing house, Enroute Books and Media. Um, I've started publishing a lot more books uh, that deal with the uh, complementarity of faith and science. And if you go to uh, onrootbooksandmedia.com, I've even got a section, Faith and Science, um, where people are going to explore the books that have been published just in the past couple of years. Um, uh, my radio show, uh, my radio station, WCAT Radio, I've in, uh, connected it with iTest. So it is the uh, platform uh, that produces all the uh, webinars. And um, uh, actually hunts for scientists uh, in the world of Catholic scientists uh, uh, to be able to come on and talk about uh, things that they're exploring uh, in terms of their faith and uh, in terms of their scientific background. And so um, ITEST is uh, the beneficiary of these other uh, um, entities that I have. Uh, but these other entities that I have are growing because of ITEST. Um, just our membership base alone, uh, our, our, our newsletter base, it's only 1,700 people. It's not as impressive as the Society for Catholic Scientists, but because of our partnership with the Society of Catholic Scientists, uh, because of how we are able to plug into their activities as well, um, it gives us a, a much broader uh, audience. So I guess a challenge for the next several years is um, bringing in uh, to our conversation those people uh, who wouldn't naturally be a part of our conversation. Um, it's hard to find theologians that are not accepting of science, at least in the Catholic world. Mm -hmm. uh, there are probably many of them in, uh, in other uh, fa uh, Christian faith traditions uh, that may um, look upon science as, uh, or even philosophy as something they don't want to explore mm. because it would go against their faith. Uh, or it might uh, say things that make them uncomfortable uh, professing their faith. It's a lot more often the case that you've got scientists, uh, like Andre uh, Fursard, for instance, mm -hmm. who uh, are so heavily involved or deeply involved in their paradigm uh, that they don't want to express um, uh, anything that might uh, reek of the supernatural. That's where it takes on the the, the, science, the the attachment to science almost takes on a, like a religious kind of a quality to it. They believe in it. They believe in it, and it's a, it's if, the science you can believe in. Even if, and you say, well, yeah, but how about we discuss something from this angle or that angle? Well, that could perhaps upset something they believe. So now we keep that away. Right. Well, and uh, you know, if you're basing your science on belief, then. You know, you demonstrating at least the capacity to be a believer. <laughs> that's, but that's where we get into those inconsistencies again, where yeah. you can, you know, you, you ward off so-called belief, but nevertheless, you that you, know, you practice, you know, a belief kind of a system. Yeah. Um, you know, this this idea of uh, of the fact that we're we're united and such. Or there's a human nature. There's, there's an ability to to bond with people. I ran into a guy at a at a conference not too long ago, and. Uh, this was this is a conference where there were a lot of scientists, a lot of engineers, uh, a lot of geologists, a lot of scientists, and you know so, you know, and that's not my background. But anyways, um, I was having a conversation with, with somebody, and he basically didn't believe in God. He believed in a God, but it was the clockmaker God. So uh, he, he was an agnostic. The, uh, he created the God, yeah. created the universe. He set all these laws of physics in motion. Stands back. Doesn't love people. Care about people. You know. But very detached, and he believed in the golden rule, you know that we all ought, ought, you know needed to be you know good to one another and so mm -hmm. forth. And I challenged him on this, and originally he was very hostile to me because, and I, I warned him. We, we, we're starting on a certain discussion, and I warned him. I says, "Look, if we're going to talk about this, I, I, I got to tell you, my I'm very religious. I'm very faithful, and what I'm going to be saying is going to come from that perspective." And uh, he surprised me because he wanted the discussion. Okay. So, um, you know, then, then we, we started on this, and so I challenged his notions. And um, I said to him, I said, and it, well, he, at first he was very hostile to me because he said, well, you people that are all very religious people, you just want me to, to join your faith. And if there's somebody from a different church, he's going to want me to join his faith. And I got to believe what he believes. And this other person, you know, and I just, I'm just not, you know, uh, you've all got, you know, there's a thousand different truths out there, and you all think yours is the one, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's very hostile. Mm -hmm. I said, no, it's fine. I mean, you, I said, you know, 
I said, you know, you, you, you know, you believe what you want. I said, it's, it's okay, you know, and, and I think he was, you know, afraid of like being judged. I'm like, no, no, you, you know, you, you're fine just the way you are. And, but here's something to think about, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point, at several points, I, I tried to stop the discussion. Okay, well, you know, because I was thinking maybe this is too much. And, and he's like, no, no, no. So he wanted to continue this discussion. He was hungry for it. And I think the difference was, if I had to guess, the fact that he felt this acceptance. I wasn't judging him. Yeah. No matter that, it was no matter that he didn't believe what I believed. It was okay. He was, and he was okay as a person. Because I had this, and I told him, I said, look, I said, if you go looking for the answers, you'll find the truth. Because I've, you know, I've got, I've got this confidence um, that there is this truth. And if you do go ask and you shall receive, right? So I think that's what connected us. So it was a personal connection. It was a connection on a human level. There was a, uh, he felt, I guess, in a, in a certain form, love, right? At least, you know, you don't judge, you don't, you know, you accept, uh, you accept without conditions. I mean, it's a, you know, even on that level, I guess, a form of, of, of extending love to somebody. Well, if that was the reason that we connected, where does that come from? That's it. It's a relationship. You know, where does that, that sense internally? Right. Um, that another person accepts me, and therefore I feel drawn. Where does that drawing, I mean, you talk about it like a, almost a gravitational pull. How about that one? We just worked a little science <laughs> in there. Uh, but anyways, um, so we're just about out of time. And uh, I'm going to make an offer to you, if you would, if you would sure. like. Uh, perhaps you could close us out with a prayer. Absolutely, and thank you for that. Uh, so in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time together. Uh, thank you for uh, uh, the uh, presence of your Son in our lives, and uh, for our understanding that it's through uh, our relationship with you uh, that we are able to have relationship uh, with others. And um, uh, through our relationship with others, we're able to demonstrate our love for you. Uh, so um, uh, please continue to help us uh, uh, extend our uh, mission, uh, which is ultimately one of evangelization. It's ultimately one uh, to proclaim uh, the glory of the gospel, of the glory of your Son uh, through the gospels um, to the world, as, uh, as he asked us to do. Uh, so uh, please also uh, uh, help us with the intentions in our hearts, uh, in the intentions of all of the viewers of this video, uh, that we may continue uh, to grow in our faith and in our love of you and of um, our uh, uh, everyone, uh, even those, especially those who don't agree with us on many things. Uh, with all this we pray in Christ's name, uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Mafood, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope uh, you come back uh, and listen uh, to another another episode. Uh, until then, God bless. <laughs>